You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to MidtownColumbia.com. Well, good morning. How are you? Yeah, good. Good, good, good. Uh, it's really good to see you. If you're a guest with us this morning, my name is Michael Bailey. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and it's my pleasure as always to get to be with you guys as a little family this morning as we open up God's Word and once again continue our journey all the way through the Ten Commandments that God has given us in His Word. And today we hit the seventh commandment uh, that you just heard in the video, you shall not commit adultery. Now, parents, let me just say a quick word to you here. Uh, Today is bare minimum going to be a little PG. It might flex up to PG-13. And for what it's worth, I am completely comfortable being a conversation starter for you. All right. I just don't want you to have to have a conversation that you are not quite ready for yet. So if you have kids in the room and you want to take them to Kid Town, please feel free to do that. Just uh, do with this information what you will, if I may. All right. We're going to we're going to kind of get in this morning. Uh, Now, like last week, this is a command that on the surface seems very straightforward, right? Like you shall not commit adultery. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's even simpler than that. In Hebrew, it's just two words no adultery. And obviously the bare bones of this command are to, uh, is God calling his people to be relationally and sexually faithful to their spouse, to not cheat on your spouse and to not be the one that someone else is cheating with. And what we see throughout the scriptures is that Jesus famously doubles down on this. He famously doubles down and upholds this command. This is what he says in Matthew chapter five. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Once again, like we saw last week, Jesus comes after the seed in our heart that gives birth to this fruit. It's not just the action of cheating that God cares about with this command, but the heart that lies behind it. The heart that sinfully desires someone else is also in God's eyes cheating with them. Uh, And Jesus goes even further. He doesn't just stop here. Just a few verses later in Matthew chapter five, we see him once again say, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery as well. Now, We did a whole sermon last year on these verses, and I highly suggest you check it out if you want to dive into all the implications of what Jesus means when he says these things. But the reason that I bring them all up to kind of put out before us here out the jump this morning is to show us that evidently God really, really cares about marriage and sex. Apparently, God really, really cares about these things. Like, these are some of the sound bites that absolutely bewilder people in our culture when it comes to sex, marriage, and God. In fact, it was just as bewildering to Jesus' disciples. At another point, they respond with, well, Jesus, if this is true, if what you're saying about marriage here is true, and this is really how it ought to be, then it's better for us to not get married. And Jesus essentially responds to them, yeah, It is what it is, and you should try to swallow that pill if you can accept it. And it rightly sounds pretty restrictive and intense, especially by our 21st century sexual practices. And it prompts the question by married and unmarried folks alike, why does God treat this like such a big deal? 
Why does God think and feel towards sex and marriage in these ways such that he would command no adultery and he would double down on it the way that he does in the New Testament? And as we said before, that's a big part of what we're actually trying to accomplish with this series. We're not just trying to talk about what these commands are, but why God commands them in the first place, what his heart behind them actually is, and why they are ultimately for our good. And, that, and in order for us to really understand the implications of the seventh command for us today, that's where we got to start. We got to dig in here. And so that's where we're going to begin. We're going to start by asking, by, by answering the question, like, what does this actually reveal to us about God and what he thinks? and feels when it comes to marriage. And so to get there, we're going to flip back over a couple of pages like we did last week, and we're going to go to Genesis. We're going to go to Genesis chapter two, where we see this idea of marriage actually originate. All right. So let me show you where this comes from. This is Genesis chapter two, and we'll pick up in verse 20. This is what it reads. It says, the man gave names to all, to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. So just to bring you up to speed, God put man in the garden and he basically gave him a job to do, to keep the garden, to cultivate the garden. And a part of that was to survey all the animals and to name them, to give them an identity and that sort of thing. Keep, keep moving. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So we don't have time to really go into this, but that word helper there is a really special word in the Hebrew. It's the Hebrew word is there. And it's, it, I, the English doesn't do us any favors here, but it doesn't mean something demeaning like daddy's little helper, as though uh, Adam's looking for something that is less than himself. Rather, it's a word that carries the connotation of strength. So think like the reinforcements for an army. It's a strengthening partner. But Adam is looking out over all of God's creatures and concludes, there is nothing here that can be that with me. There's nothing here like me. And so picking up in verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And I absolutely love this. Like, this is the first little glimpse of poetry we get to see in the, in the scriptures. At this point, Adam sees his bride that God intentionally crafted, and he just busts out into song. He just busts out into poetry. And in the English, it kind of reads like a bad country love song, because honestly, that's kind of what it is. Like, that's kind of exactly what it is. And this is why the writer concludes in verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his woman, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, there's an awful lot that is happening here. But notice, the thing I want to draw our attention to is notice what we see about the marriage of Adam and Eve. The whole thing from start to finish was God's doing. The whole thing. He made the man, he made the woman. And then he brings them together and he makes their marriage. That phrase, one flesh there in verse 24, it's significant. In Hebrew, one is the word ekad. And when combined with flesh, it basically means fused together at the deepest level. The best way I've ever heard to think about it is to think about it a little bit like salt, which we know chemically is sodium chloride. We know that salt is sodium and chloride combined. 
but it's not sodium and chloride coexisting independently of each other, just sort of operating on their own and doing their own thing. The two have come together in such a way that they have become something unique and new and different. That is how the Bible is actually talking about marriage here, that the two no longer separate and individual, but are one new thing together made by God. And that's an important nugget. It tells us that marriage is not a man-made invention, that marriage is not something that man created himself. No, marriage is God's invention. It is God's doing. The union of a man and a woman is something that God has done. The first wedding ceremony is officiated by God himself. It's what he did. Adam is the groom, Eve is the bride, and the venue is the garden. And this is why Jesus later says that what God has joined together, let no man separate because this relationship is actually the work of God. The union of a man and a woman in marriage is something God has done. And just like the image bearers who comprise the marriage, marriage itself is a sacred thing from God's perspective. Now, don't misunderstand me. By calling it sacred, I'm not calling it ultimate, okay? By calling it sacred, I'm not calling it ultimate. I'm not saying that anyone who doesn't get married is somehow lesser than or is missing out on life. That is not the case. By calling it sacred, all I mean is that God has set it apart as something distinct and different than every other human relationship. That marriage is made by God and it is made by God for a purpose. That he has an intention and a design, and something that he wants to accomplish in and through this marriage that he has made. Now, some of that purpose we see see readily here in the early pages of Genesis, Uh, things like to fill the earth and to multiply, like we saw last week, that marriage is meant to create life and family and flourishing. Additionally, the man and the woman are meant to play an integral role in the keeping and cultivating of the world that God has made. They are to partner together for life and the good of the world and God, for for the good of the world and for God's glory. But the scriptures actually go on to tell us that it's even more than that, that God's purposes in marriage are even greater than these things. This comes from Ephesians chapter five, where Paul, he actually provides us more insight on this very verse that we just read in Genesis. This is what he says in verse 31. He quotes Genesis and says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Pay attention to what he says in verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Do you see what he did there? Paul says the reason that marriage exists on planet earth is because God essentially wanted to create a living, breathing representation of his relationship with his bride, with his people, the church. That that's the mystery of marriage, so to speak. And it grounds all of Paul's instruction to married couples that their relationship is about something much, much bigger than just their relationship. So one of the ways that I've often talked about this with younger engaged couples is that uh, I've told them that uh, to think of marriage a little bit like God's Instagram feed. 
Okay. And I know that sounds really, really weird. It sounds really, really weird when I say that to them. In fact, I often say it when I perform their weddings and you should see the looks that their families give me when I bring it up. Like the glares, it's almost comical, but at the end of the day, I have the mic. So what are they going to do? Right. Uh, but as odd sounding as it is, think, think about it for just a moment. Like what does Instagram do? Like at its best, what does Instagram do? It provides us with a glimpse of something, right? It provides us with a little glimpse or a little picture into something, a little window, so to speak, into you and your life. Not, not the whole thing, for sure. Definitely not the whole thing, but a window or a portrait into something much, much bigger than itself. What the scriptures are telling us here is such is the same purpose for marriage, that it's a window for the world into something far greater than the marriage itself. It's meant to be this portrait, this picture, so to speak, of the faithful love and grace of God, that this relationships that we, that we enter into with one another is meant to testify to the world that this is who God is. This is what he is like. And most specifically, this is how God loves his people. That if you want to know how God loves and feels towards his people, you should have to look no further than how a husband and a wife love and relate to one another. This is what marriage is all about. And so it begs the question, obviously, so how exactly does God love his people? And the scriptures tell us this over and over and over again. One of my favorite spots is in Romans 5, verse 8, where it says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That the way we know what love is, is we look to Jesus. If we want to know how God loves, Jesus is the glaring example. God shows us what love looks like in and through Jesus. And what this means for us is that in God's perspective, from God's view, his love is a self-giving grace and commitment to his people, even in spite of his people. Even in spite of their failings and their sin, God gives himself to them to save and rescue and redeem them. The way theologians talk about the way God relates to his people is through the idea of a covenant. And that's not really a word that we use a lot today, but think about it as basically an exchange of promises or vows to one another for the purpose of a relationship. This is how God loves his people, through a promise. God loves his people through a promise, a commitment, not a contract, not a mutual agreement that we negotiate with God on the basis of our behavior that can be taken away when we or he don't, doesn't uphold the end of the bargain, but a promise that he makes and a promise that he upholds. And the point being is that God's love for us, God's love for you is not conditional. He doesn't love you because you're lovely. His love is what makes us lovely. He doesn't love you because you're worthy or because you've earned it. His love is what makes us worthy. He doesn't love us because we add some sort of value to his existence as though uh, it, something was absent or missing from him before. His love is what makes us valuable. He loves us because he has chosen to love us. And his love says that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, I give all of myself to get all of you. This is how Jesus loves. This is something I tell you guys over and over and over again, because this is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus, that this is how God loves. And this is what marriage is all about, including your own. Even if you have never thought about it in those terms, this is what marriage is really all about. In the eyes of God, it is much more 
than simply having a romantic partner in life. It's much more than compatibility and shared interest or even sexual attraction. Those things can be present and are even blessed by God within the relationship. But the meaning of marriage, the purpose of marriage is much, much bigger than that. At its core, marriage is a means by which we preach a sermon of something eternal. And when we see it in that light, and when we understand that this is how God sees marriage, it makes sense why God says that sex is meant to be kept inside of it. That sex is meant for this relationship and this relationship alone. Because sex is a way of saying with our bodies, as the pop psalmist John Legend puts it, I give you all of me and you give me all of you. Sex is a physical manifestation of the one flesh that God creates in marriage. It's what it is. It's a tangible expression of the intangible reality of our covenant with one another. And this is what God made it to be. Those words in verse 25 of Genesis were not an accident, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Sex was God's design. And some of y'all might need to hear that this morning. Sex was God's design. He made it. He created it. It wasn't like he looked down from heaven and was like, oh my gosh, what are you little perverts doing down there? Like, what is happening? No, he loves it. He made it for our good. It was invented by him to be an attachment creating and covenant affirming event. To be a way of saying with your body, all of me, everything that I am belongs to you forever. And science is catching up to this, especially in the areas of sexual addiction. Like despite what our culture would claim, you cannot have sex with someone without strengthening your attachment to them. You can't do it. People who have become so addicted to porn usage that they can only reach climax with pornography and not with their real spouse play this out. The chemicals produced in this act of great meaning and pleasure literally bind your brain to the person or object that you experience that with. This is an idea called neuroplasticity, basically the release of chemicals in, in our brains when we have sex, that dopamine and all that kind of stuff. It rewires our brain to attach to the person or object that we had that experience with. This is how God made it to work. This is what sex is. And so in light of that, scripture says that sex only makes sense inside of the framework of a covenant. It only makes sense there because it's meant to reinforce the covenantal relationship that your marriage represents. And this is why God cares about adultery. This is why God cares enough about adultery to include it in his list of 10 commandments because get this, God doesn't have other lovers. God doesn't have other lovers and his love is not conditional or fickle, or swayed by a more attractive option. His love is committed and permanent and never giving up and never changing. The fact of the matter is, is God never breaks his covenant. And so the seventh command says, and neither are you to break yours either. God never breaks his covenant. And so you shouldn't break your covenant as well. And this is where this command really confronts us, right? Because I don't know if I can think of another sentence in our culture 
that sounds more like nails on a chalkboard than that one. It's really interesting how Jesus talks about all this back in Matthew chapter five, when he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That word for lust there is the Greek word epithemeo, and it's translated in other places as coveting, which is the wanting of something that is not yours or that you cannot have, a selfish, often insatiable desire for more. So greed, the selfish or insatiable desire for money or wealth in this sense is just the lust of money. That's what it is. And that's really clarifying because it shows us a couple of things. For one, it shows us that Jesus is not simply talking about finding someone attractive or appreciating beauty, that that's normal and healthy. God created beauty. We're meant to appreciate it. No, this is talking about the selfish longing for something that is not yours. For lack of a better way of talking about it, the commodifying of a person or a relationship. To treat another person or relationship as though it were just a good or a service that sole purpose is to exist for your personal gain, for your personal pleasure or your happiness or your comfort or your value or or to add value to your life. To look at a person or a relationship and say, this is ultimately about what it provides for me. And I can think of no better way, honestly, to describe adultery in whatever form it takes than that. And I can think of no better way to describe how the vast majority of 21st century Americans think about these things than to say that adultery is the commodifying of marriage and sex. It is. The most obvious example of this is porn. The porn industry is a $16.9 billion industry in the United States alone. And the entire thing is built off of objectifying the bodies of other human beings for personal gratification. It's what it is. And it's commonplace. It's ordinary in our society. But it's not just porn. According to a Pew Research report from last year, nearly 84% of religiously unaffiliated Americans say that casual sex between two consenting adults, regardless of marital status, is sometimes or always acceptable. The, the dominant thought when it comes to sex in our culture is that it's not that big of a deal, that it's just not that big of a deal. It's just a commodity that two consenting adults do for fun or to feel good or to relax, regardless of any higher meaning or purpose. And honestly, I mean, I know we're in church, so that's probably what we would expect. But the thing that really shocked me about the study is that in the exact same study, it was revealed that nearly half of self-identified Christians agree with them that nearly half of self-identified Christians say, yeah, that's really all sex is. It's not not that big of a deal. It's kind of whatever. When it comes to adultery, it's hard to get precise data because most people try to keep it a secret. But according to the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy, 15% of women and 25% of men have committed adultery. And they say that if you include emotional and uh, emotional, excuse me, emotional and sexual intimacy without actual intercourse, those numbers move up to 35 and 45 percent. In 2015, the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy reported that 41 percent of marriages, one and 41 percent of marriages, one or both spouses admit to either physical or emotional infidelity, and that's just those who admit it. Interestingly enough, 74% of men say that they would have an affair if they knew they would never get caught. And 68% of women say the same. What are these stats telling us? 
What are they telling us about how we think about marriage and sex? I think they're saying that when it comes to marriage and sex, we, we're really just after whatever serves me, whatever I want, whatever I think I need for happiness or fulfillment or comfort or whatever. I was forwarded a New York Times article recently that honestly, it left me dumbfounded. Like I, I couldn't even believe it was real, but this is what it said. In, the, in it, the author said, I've learned that divorce can also be an act of radical self-love that leaves the whole family better off. My divorce nearly seven years ago freed me from a relationship that was crushing my spirit. But listen to this. There was no emotional or physical abuse in our home. There was no absence of love. I was in love with my husband when we got divorced. Part of me is in love with him still. I divorced my husband not because I didn't love him. I divorced him because I loved myself more. Listen, she's just coming out here and saying out loud the quiet part. You hear it? She's just saying what actually runs out loud, what actually runs underneath the surface of all of this. Because the reality is that so many of us, consciously or unconsciously, take the exact same posture when it comes to these things. A posture that says, hey, I like you and you make me happy. And I am in this for as long as this is continuing to make me happy and my life improves. But the moment that my happiness runs low, the moments, moment that this gets more difficult than I really want it to be, or you do something that jeopardizes it in my life, or you're not living up to your end of the deal, well, then I'm out. Then I have to go find another option because my happiness is what's most important to me. You can't expect me to stay in this. We are flippant about covenant keeping at best. And to be quite honest with you, I think we are sometimes blind to the damage that it is doing to us. I'll give you one example. There's a book called The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce. They did a 25-year study where they tracked the long-term outcomes of 131 children of divorce. Uh, and it's considered a ground, is groundbreaking and foundational for understanding the effects of these things on, on children. Let me just read you an excerpt from one of the, one of the participants. This is what they said. It says, as I, excuse me, as I began to speak with others about the emotional impact of their parents' divorce on their romantic lives today, similar themes came forth again and again, described in similar language. I've built up walls, rarely letting anyone in. I have trouble living in the moment and often find myself wondering how things will end even as they start. I feel like the rug could be pulled out from underneath me at any time. I constantly set up tests, forcing people to prove their love to me. I have a hard time trusting. I'm so scared of being abandoned. Another child of divorced parents due to adultery put it in even more crushing terms. They said, if mommy and daddy can stop loving each other, then that means at some point they could stop loving me. It's haunting. It's absolutely haunting. But this is what happens when individualism and happiness are taken to the extreme, where follow your heart is the battle cry. We keep telling people that the biggest problem is, is you're not putting yourself first enough. And it's like we just can't seem to notice that that's not working, that that is leaving far more destruction in its wake than it's actually helping and serving us. Like, my gosh, I cannot even imagine the damage it would do to my soul if it was always in the back of my mind that Lauren might decide to leave me at the drop of a hat one day. 
If that was always hanging over me, if I was always thinking that, man, this next argument might be the straw that breaks the camel's back, that if our kids had to worry that every argument might be the one that tears our family apart. Like, I can't even imagine what that would be like to have that hanging in the air over my family. You see, we were made for covenant faithfulness. We were made to not have to worry and fear these things. This is what God wants for us. To not have to worry about the uncertainty or unpredictability of life and relationships. It's supposed to be that our closest relationships are the most secure. And the reality of it is, is that the further that we get from it, the more trouble we find ourselves in. The more anxious, the more depressed, the more unsettled, more unsure, less trusting, more fearful, because nothing is secure. And when God gives us this command, when he says no adultery, this is what he's trying to protect you from. This is what he is trying to protect our world from, because this is what adultery does. It's what adultery does. Some of you have lived with this. Some of you have lived through it. You know it. You know this well, that it all breaks outside of covenant, that adultery disrupts the long-term process of joy and attachment building in a, com- in a committed intimacy, that it betrays the one that you're supposed to love more than yourself, that it attaches you to someone you're not in covenant with. And it might feel good in the moment, but it is forcefully working against your long-term good and the good of those around you. This is what it does in whatever shape or form it takes. And so the call of the seventh command to us as the people of God is to be a people who embody a better way, is to be a people who embody something different, a people who don't treat marriage and sex like it were a mere commodity, but as though it were a covenant, a promise to love and to keep loving the person next to us as God loves us, a people who see marriage as a gift given to us for something bigger than us, something bigger than just simply our happiness or our pleasure. To say it a bit differently, for the believer, we let marriage sustain our love not the other way around, who choose to love the one we're with for all the best and all the worst parts of who they are. The truth is, and let me just say this to you, the truth is is that no one is the perfect fit for you. And I just want you to hear me say that kind of loud and clear. No one is the perfect fit for you. At best, finding a spouse is finding someone who is just the least not good fit for you out of all the other not good fits for you. You feel what I'm saying? Anyone you get married to, anyone is going to come with flaws and character traits, good and bad, that are going to bring out the best and the absolute worst in you that make your life better in a lot of ways and make your life worse in a lot of others. This is how it goes. And if you know that God's covenant love is what your marriage covenant is all about, then that means that God has given you that spouse. He has given you your spouse for your good. 
not primarily for your happiness, but for your holiness to shape and to form you into someone who sacrifices for the other, who lays down their life for the other. And in the process over years and decades of this, who becomes more like Jesus and displays the glorious magnificence of his love for his people, who loves us unconditionally, who loves us in spite of the worst about us. That's the beauty of covenant. That's the beauty of the relationship you enter into. So Lauren and I got away this past weekend. We sent the kids to the grandparents, uh, which was great, by the way. I highly recommend you do it if you're able to do it. Uh, but we sent the kids to the grandparents, and we took a, took a little time away together. Uh, and one of the things that came up was just how different we would be as people if it weren't for our marriage. We listened to a pastor preach a sermon while we were kind of spending time together. And he was talking about how he just didn't realize how selfish and narcissistic he was until he got married. And as we're listening to this, it was like a wave of familiarity washed over us, right? Because before we got married, I'll be honest with you, we both thought we were pretty great. We really did. We both thought we were pretty great. But she is just the right kind of different than me. And I am just the right kind of different than her. <laughs> that it didn't take long until our union exposed all of these areas where we were not okay. All of these areas of sin and selfishness that we didn't even know were there, oftentimes leading to conflict and pain. And we will both tell you, there were moments early on where we both thought, I don't know if this is gonna work. I don't know if this it's going to work or if we're going to make it. But now we stand on the other end. Now we stand on the other end and we realize if we had given up, there would be so much that God would have never been able to do in us. That despite our differences, despite the things about us that grate against each other, that God used those very things to shape and change us in a way that we never thought imaginable but ways we absolutely needed. And she is a gift to me. And I see that now, not just for my happiness. And she does, she brings me so much joy and so much happiness, but she's a gift to me for my holiness. She's a gift to me to get me more of Jesus. And I see that now more than ever. I'm grateful to God for it. And the same can be true of your marriage too. And please don't mishear me. There might be all kinds of things that you need to work on and work through. In fact, I guarantee there are. But don't miss the forest for the trees. Because Jesus is alive and his promises are true. The same can be true for your marriage. God wants to use it to mold and make the both of you more like him. And in the process, show the world exactly who he is. And so if we know this, if we know that God uses marriage for our good, then what this means is that as God's people, we want to become a people who fight for it. We want to be a people who fight for fidelity, who fight for our marriages, who put in the hard work day in and day out to cultivate a deeper love and loyalty to the person that God has given to us. This means, to put it rather bluntly, it means that we become a people who don't practice for adultery. You hear that? Who, what, we don't practice for adultery because it's like Jesus said earlier in Matthew 5, like there is a way you can be cultivating adultery in your heart long before you commit adultery with your body. A flirtatious, flirtatious conversation at work that you just let go a little bit too far. 
a fantasy that at, for a little while, it's just a fantasy. But then, you know, you start kind of making plans to let it happen. Porn again here is an easy one. It's easy to see how cultivating fantasy in your mind over time leads you to be less and less fulfilled by your spouse. And the call of this command is, to, is a call to fight against it. But here's one maybe you don't normally think about when it comes to this. Criticism. Like when you constantly nitpick your spouse. When you criticize them, either privately or publicly, rather than respecting and honoring them. Or when you're with your friends and you talk about what you don't like about your spouse. Do you know what you're doing? You are practicing for adultery. You are rehearsing. Instead of rehearsing the love and the faithfulness and the grace of God, you are rehearsing all of the things, all of the reasons why, you know what, my spouse, maybe I don't need to be with them anymore. And that discontentment, that discontentment that comes when you compare your flaws of your spouse with someone else, someone else over time, it just builds up again, fantasy or infidelity, infidelity, either emotionally or physically with someone that it's not meant for. And I'm not saying that you don't talk with your spouse about the things that get on your nerves. Absolutely, you should. You need to have healthy communication. But I am saying that the call of this command is to learn to love the one you're with. To learn to love the one you're with. And he goes on to say that whatever is causing you to sin, cut it off. Take aggressive action against it. Single people, let me just give you a word too. Like this is a command for you too. This is not just a command for married people. It's a command for you to consider how do you currently approach your relationships? Statistically speaking, 91% of you are likely to get married. And some of you could very well be doing things right now in your heart that will inevitably cultivate adultery later on in your heart and in your body. Whether that be through porn usage or crossing physical boundaries with whoever you're dating, or maybe just in how you currently approach the dating game altogether. Perhaps as though you are swiping right for a commodity instead of seeing a human being with a soul. <laughs> but here's what I know. This is the aim. This is where God wants to take us. But what I know is that while I don't know every single story that is represented in this room this morning, I know that most, if not all of our lives have been impacted by violating the seventh commandment. I know that. Whether that be the pain or shame of an affair or the powerful grip of lust and its various shapes and forms wreaking havoc on our lives, or even just going through a reckoning of sorts with the fact that your happily ever after isn't as happy as you wanted or expected it to be. And maybe for you, it feels like cheating or trying to get out is the only feasible option or at least the most tantalizing. And so I think the question becomes for us is how do we move forward as the people of God in this? With all of this history, with all of this baggage, with all of this struggle, how do we move forward and actually embody the things that God is calling us to? Well, there's a be this beautiful story from Jesus's life in John chapter eight. When Jesus was out teaching, he's out teaching and the Pharisees bring to him a woman caught in the act of adultery. They caught her and I don't know how they caught her. Uh, the scriptures kind of leave that up to our imagination. <laughs> uh, but they caught her in the act and they bring her to Jesus. And it's a very dramatic scene. And they say to Jesus, listen, Jesus, the law says that we should stone this woman. We've caught her dead to rights. And the law says we should stone her. What do you say? 
And it was basically a test to test Jesus. And in a real ninja move, Jesus bends down, bends down and he starts writing in the sand and simply says, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And one by one, as they all recognize their own guilt, they walk away. And after all that drama, verse 10 tells us something important. Verse 10 says that Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. It's a beautiful moment. And what Jesus says here really matters. Notice the order of his statements at the end. It's critical. Most of us would reverse that order. Neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more. What comes first, forgiveness or life change? Which happens? Forgiveness. Most of us would reverse the order. We would say, first, you need to stop what you're doing, get your act together, and then God will forgive you and heal you and make things right. But Jesus doesn't do that. Rather, he says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. He offers forgiveness. And then after that, he says, now that you've been forgiven, go and live in light of this reality. Now that you've been set free, go and embrace this freedom. You see, what the seventh commandment ought to do for us this morning is remind our souls, not just of our unfaithfulness, but rather of God's ultimate faithfulness to us. They should remind us of who he is and what he's done, that he is a God who forgives, that grace and love are unending for his people, a God who sees all of our sin, all of our shame and brokenness and washes us clean. It should remind us that God is a God who always keeps his covenant because the power to embody this command comes first from receiving the one who embodied it for us. Our power to actually keep this command, to feel this way towards our spouse, to act this way towards our spouse is first understanding that this is exactly, understanding and receiving that this is exactly how God has treated you and treated me. Like if you know Jesus and have received grace from him, if you know and feel what it's like to be found a sinner, to fall short, when you are at your worst, you see your savior lay down his life for you. Then for all the future, when your spouse fails you, when they let you down or hurt you, you will respond to them the way that Jesus has responded to you, by laying your life down for them, by forgiving them and serving them as you have been forgiven and served. So then instead of silent treatments or withholding affection or retreating to the garage or the office, you will work through your conflict and disagreement. You will continue to extend acceptance and love. In short, you will give grace, the exact same kind of grace that Jesus has shown to you. For those of us burdened with the weight of our failure and shame, you need to hear the words of the resurrected King Jesus whisper to you right now. Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. I am with you always. I am not going anywhere. I love you, I forgive you, and I will make you clean. You are my child. Now go and live like it. Now go 
and live like it. Go and sin no more. For those who feel trapped and hopeless, like you are destined to a happily never after, the empty tomb tells you that anything is possible. That just like this woman caught in adultery was not too far gone, no one and no marriage is too far gone either. Lauren and I talk every now and then about the wonder of being married until we die. I, uh, I imagine us in our 70s and 80s when divorce would not just be sinful, uh, but would be socially silly, right? Looking across the breakfast table from each other, all wrinkly and whatnot, be great. Thinking back onto all that we've endured together, the displays of faithfulness, the mercy, and above all the grace, and getting just to say to each other, we made it. We made it. But here's what we know. It's only by grace that we're going to get there. It's only by grace that we're going to get there. It's only by over and over reminding one another that it is by grace that we have been saved and it is by grace that we are sustained. By over and over again, coming back to God's covenant commitment to us to drive our covenant commitment to one another. Because without it, man, without it, we would be up the creek. We know it's by grace that we've been brought into the covenant of God and it is by grace that we will make it to the very end. That's how it happens. But that is also what is available for you as well. And it's what I pray for us. It's what I pray for our marriages, that as we move forward as a church together, that this would be what our marriages are known for. That when people see us, they see the radical grace, mercy, and love of Christ. Because our marriages are a picture. Our marriages are a portrait of the one who loves us.